I've had a professor by the name of Dan Doriani. As maybe some of you have read have read some of his books. He's he's very helpful in, in some of the things he writes about, just in the uh, regular nature of Christian life, things like the subject of work and faith and all of these things. But but one of the things he talks about is preaching in a mild state of panic. He actually wrote an article about that. And and what he doesn't mean is preaching from a perspective of being completely, from a position of being unprepared or anything like that. We come to the task of preaching as ministers very prepared. We ought to be. We've studied. We've written things out. It's all there. Um, But at the same time, you recognize a passage that you're uh, that you're expounding is ultimately God's, God's word to his people. And when you come to some passages, uh, you can see that while the main line is always the main line, this could go in a number, in a number of practical directions in terms of the immediacy of, of some of this application. So this morning is one of those where I think I uniquely feel the preaching in a mild state of panic. You may very well agree with me by the time it's all over that that was nothing less than panic. But, um, but we're going to come to this and we're going to look at it. it is a, it's a magnificent passage. It's a, it's a glorious passage that outlines uh, the way the Lord works. So let's pray and then we'll set the context for our study. Father, we're thankful that we can come under your word. We acknowledge both as preacher and as hearer that we need your help for this task. You, you tell us in your word. Uh, that we can't discern the things that come from the Spirit of God unless we have the Spirit of God in us. And so we need that help this morning to understand your word, to apply your word, to have it uh, renew our hearts in your truth, ultimately, that directs us to Jesus Christ, our Savior. So help us to this end. We depend on you entirely. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, you may remember um, where we left the narrative off last time as we've been working through Samuel that things were not looking very good. Um, Israel had wanted a king like the nations, and that's exactly what they got. They got King Saul. And in King Saul, they uh, received a leader who ultimately failed them. And it wasn't just that Saul failed them generally, uh, but he has now got them into this situation with their main enemies, the Philistines. And it's a situation in this text that's uh, extremely problematic because instead of Saul dealing with the Philistines immediately as he should have, having been instituted as king in Israel, instead of him dealing with the Philistines, uh, he uh, let time go by. He was out on his farm uh, plowing the fields instead of dealing with the Philistine garrison that was in his own hometown. He let time go by. And so the Philistine stronghold has only grown greater in terms of its grip. And, and Saul, on, uh, for his own part, has simply done things his own way. He's been lazy in the task assigned to him as king, and, and not just that, but he's actually violated the word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel. Uh, he's been disobedient to what God has called him to do, and as a result, not only has the Lord made it clear that Saul and his royal dynasty is now finished, that's where he left things last time in verse 14 of chapter 13, uh, Saul's dynasty as king, it's all coming to an end. Uh, But along with that, we also have this very uh, significant problem with the Philistine military having now been stirred up against Israel, and they are uh, presenting a very dangerous threat to the people. That's where we left things last time. The people of God are what we might call uh, in this this situation of looming devastation. The Philistine army is angry. They've been stirred up like a hornet's nest, and now they're they're angling on, on the Israelite people. And, and while the situation seems a bit hopeless, we do know uh, that the Lord is not one to abandon His people. Instead, we see that the Lord remains committed to His people. And, and so what we discover in our section today is that while this devastation is looming, while, while, while a, menace, a menacing uh, Philistine cloud, in a sense, is hanging overhead of the people, ultimately, 
the Lord is the one who brings deliverance once again. The Lord is the one who proves himself strong. And, and so what we see in this narrative is, is a move from looming devastation initially to ultimately the experience of the victory of God. And, and even in saying that, we can immediately attach to the narrative arc that's, that's reflected here. There's, there's a sense in which that narrative arc from, from looming devastation to the Lord's victory that's something that we can very much experience and identify with in our own lives, albeit a little bit separated from an angry group like the Philistines being involved, but we can identify with that narrative arc of God's work in our own lives. Uh, we can reflect on our own experiences, and as we think about various situations throughout our days, there can be a sense in which the conditions of, of potential devastation very much loom upon us. Uh, we can think of certain situations that we've faced, whether it's, it's financial situations, relationship situations, uh, maybe it's circumstances of our own internal and personal struggle, these kinds of things. We're not strangers to what we could describe as a, as a looming sense of devastation for a variety of reasons, not least of all when we come to consider our ultimate need of salvation. We recognize that in the most ultimate sense, apart from all that may go on in our life, we are separated from the God who made us and we need a kind of reconciliation. So if we're, if we're reading our Bibles and while we come to a passage like this that is fairly separate, extremely separated contextually from where we are living out our days here in Portland, at the same time we recognize the need and the help that is represented is something identifiable to us. Looming devastation affects our lives. It can affect us in the most personal ways. It affects us in the most cosmic way in terms of our relationship to the living God. Looming devastation is there. However, as we come to the scriptures and as we go through a life of trusting in God time and time again, we're brought to recognize that that devastation, that sense of foreboding is never the final word in the believer's life because the Lord who we serve is the Lord who brings rescue. He's the one who brings sustaining power. He's the one who gives help when all the odds may seem to be set against us. And so we come to our passage uh, this morning uh, with, a, with a sense of, of our own need. Maybe this is even a timely consideration for you. It may be that, that there are certain pressures looming in life, a certain sense of foreboding that's, that's brewing for you, and you're wondering, what, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to get through this? Where's God going to be for me in these things that I'm facing? And even if that's not a current experience for you, we know, as we're in the Christian life long enough, we can know how those experiences do come and press down upon us. We feel a distance. We feel a devastation. We can feel uh, darkness descend, uh, whether it's upon our hearts specifically or upon our lives in general. We feel the weightiness of, of hardship. And in a passage like this, we're reminded that that is never where we're left uh, when the Lord is on our side. That's never where we're ultimately left because this God who we may uh, significantly offend as he's going to be offended again in this chapter while he may be significantly and, and cosmically offended by us, he's never the God who abandons us, uh, which is a great encouragement to us. It's a great encouragement to me. Um, and, so, and so let's look at this passage together. We're going to take uh, this whole section in, in three parts and we'll have to move at a pretty good, pretty good pace. Uh, probably there will be some good discussion just for home group this week because we can't touch on every single thing, but there's, uh, there's, there's some main thrusts to notice here. So first of all, if you look at verses 15 to 23 of chapter 13, so the last part of chapter 13, in that section we find that there is an intensifying picture of, of looming devastation that's given, given to us there. There's an intensification of this, of this devastation that's surrounding the people of God. 
Um, I'm not going to read all these verses again for us just because it's long. But if you, if you follow along in the text, we know at this point that, that Samuel the prophet has just told Saul the king that because of Saul's disobedience, uh, the Lord is going to reject Saul and his, and his kingly line. The dynasty of Saul is going to come to an end. Um, and instead, the Lord will give His people a man after His own heart. Ultimately, it's something that uh, anticipates David, who we're going to meet here very shortly in the, in the Samuel narrative. So David's coming. Right now, Saul's been rejected as king. And now in verse 15, we have Samuel and Saul basically moving on from that encounter where, where Samuel's given those words to Saul. They're moving on, and they're moving on in the context of the Philistine army now very much advancing upon them. And so from verse 15 through verse 23... We basically are given a report of how bad things really are for Saul and his army as the Philistines are are arrayed against them. So just notice a few things here. If you look at the text, uh, first of all, we're reminded that that Israel is completely outnumbered militarily. That's first. In verse 15, we're told there Saul counts his troops. He has about 600 men, which which of course is, is is a fairly large problem considering that we're told earlier in chapter 13 about the thousands of Philistine troops and their thousands of chariots and so on. So Saul has a really small army. He he even had a few more before, though it wasn't impressive then, but a bunch of them have deserted since this dangerous situation is upon them. So, So Saul's way outnumbered militarily. And then we also see that the remaining troops, they're cut off from any kind of rescue. They're cut off from any kind of backup arriving. Um, and, and, we're, and we're showing this through some geographical details that's, that, are, that are there for us in verse 16. Um, so in verse 16, we have information there that makes it clear that the, the Philistines and their massive army, they're encamped only about two miles away from Saul and his 600 men there at Michmash. And not only that, but the Philistines are sending out three raiding parties, or there's these three different uh, destructive battalions that are going out, the text says. And one, one battalion... Uh, is, is heading down Ophir Road uh, towards Shaul, that's verse 17. And then in verse 18, we have a second division on the Bethoran Road and a third division heading down the border road that overlooks the Zeboim Valley. And, and all that geography, of course, we read that and we think, I don't, I don't, that means nothing to me. It means nothing to us. Except that it's important to know what's going on here because as this geography is laid out, we can understand that what's described is a very strategically placed a set of, of Philistine forces that effectively cut off any hope that Saul is going to have of getting any Israel reinforcement from the north. So basically, Saul has been backed, away, backed against a wall. There's no place for retreat. There's no place for uh, reinforcements to reach him. So the, the Philistines have been very strategic there in, in what they've done. So not only is Saul vastly outnumbered militarily, he's also totally cut off from backup and even retreat. And then we can also notice that Saul and his army um, is, is also in a place of, of being extremely um, outgunned, we can put it that way. They, they, they don't have weapons. So because of the Philistine effect on the land, they've obviously been exercising a kind of dominance. We read there in verses 19 to 22 that, that the people of Israel have not had any access to any genuine weapons. And even their farming implements, they've been uh, charged an exorbitant amount to, to even sharpen them for the purpose of farming. So, so even if they happen to have farming implements, chances are those weapons aren't any, or those implements aren't even sharp enough to, to do the task there, let alone be used as weapons. The whole point being that, that Saul's army is in a world of hurt. Saul and his son Jonathan are the only ones who actually have fighting equipment. So, so that's going on too. So, so it's quite the situation that, that, we're, that we're left to understand here. Saul and his army, they're completely outmanned. They have no backup. 
and they're totally outgunned. There's this total devastation that is, that is, that is on, 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 the, uh, on the fringes there for them. Now, with all that in mind, the question becomes, what in the world do we make of this? Because this is a really great story. I mean, this, is, this story is movie quality in terms of Hollywood production. It would be, it'd be wonderful to see this all played out for us. But, but what do we make of this as we're reading the Bible, understanding that there's purpose for us in this ancient text? We have words like mikmash and all these different things happening geographically. Saul's without, without military implements, and that's, that's a problem. It makes for a good story. But what in the world are we to do with this? And part of the answer to that question comes when we remind ourselves, which we do continually as we study the Old Testament, we remind ourselves what Paul says to the Corinthian church in the New Testament, who are also contextually very removed from an ancient Hebrew context. Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that these things happen in the Old Testament as an example, and they're written down for our instruction. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So we know that while what's here, in a sense, is a world removed from us, it is not removed from our life of faith, and we're, and we're called, Saul expects, uh, Paul, excuse me, expects that we make use of the truth that's here in an instructional way. And so, and so with that purpose in mind, with the Scriptures giving us that compulsion to study them in that way, we, we can begin to discern uh, what's going on here. So let's, let's just think through this a little bit in terms of the, the looming devastation. Um, there are parallels to our own life that become evident as we think about what we've continually recognized through the narrative of 1 Samuel, that being that Saul is this figure of, of false hope in these, serious, in these series of events. Saul is the one who can't actually save the people. We have the people of Israel aligning themselves with what they think will be hope, a king like the nations. Ultimately, Saul is proving again and again and again and again to reject the Lord and instead pick this king like the nations is going to end in disaster. And, and, and we can make good application of that as we recognize that while what's going on in Israel is happening in a physical, uh, material world in, in the context that it's taking place, the heart condition behind it is not one that's removed from us. Because we know what it is to align ourselves, maybe with a figure or maybe with a structure. We can align ourselves with certain things, whether it's, whether it's relationships or social norms or political uh, frameworks, those kinds of things. We can align ourselves uh, with things that have a kind of promise of wholeness and even a rescue and reprieve, but ultimately don't bring the relief we're expecting. And instead, devastation begins to loom. We can be going along for a while thinking that this is going to be the area where hope is going to exist for me. This is going to be the area where relief is going to exist for me. Like, like Saul, this is going to be the one who's going to bring that fullness of human existence that I've been longing for. All of these kinds of things. And as we go along in those ways, ultimately turning our back on the Lord and embracing these other things, what we discover is we can very much find ourselves in the same place that the troops of Saul find themselves in here. We can very much find ourselves in a condition where we're, where we're overwhelmed with, with a kind of helplessness, where we're cornered like this, like this troop is here, where we ultimately have, have no weapons, if you like, no ability to push our way through to safety and find ourselves in a place of security because we are so far past uh, the, the, the place that we thought this would bring us. And that devastation can set in and ultimately leave us in a very despairing condition. 
We can, we can wonder to ourselves, I have now gotten myself to this place. I've now uh, removed myself enough times from the path of grace. I wonder if this is going to be it for me. I wonder if this miry bog, as the psalmist puts it, I wonder if this is going to ultimately be the end of things for me. I don't see any way out. As Christian believers, we can find ourselves in that, in that position. We can recognize from the Scriptures that not seeing a way out can very much be a reality for us in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And what we find in a passage like this is that not seeing our way out is ultimately not the end of what's going on. And, that, and that's where we find the great hope of a passage like this. True, the troops are cornered, they're backed in. There's no logical way for everything to turn out okay for them. Just thinking in human terms, just thinking about trusting in this soul figure they thought would bring hope. There's no logical way that help is going to come. By all, by all accounts, they're done. However, as we know, that's not the final word. That's not the final word. And so we can take great heart in, in, in this next part, seeing that that's not the final word. They're not actually done. But we can also take great heart in seeing that the experience of feeling like there's no way out is not foreign to God's people. To feel like there's no way out, I can get there and think, I just must not be a person of faith. I just must not be a person who's got it going on enough on the right path of, of righteousness and all of these things. Here I am in this place of doubt and despair and all of these things. That must, that must just disqualify me from being a really robust Christian person or whatever, whatever we might start to think. And as we read the Bible, what we realize is actually that's so often the norm. Isn't it with the psalmist? The psalmist is discouraged. The people here are backed into a corner. This is where we often find ourselves, which leads Jesus to say exactly what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. What is it? Blessed are those who have it all together, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? No. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who feel themselves outmanned, outgunned, backed into a corner. Have no way out. This is, this is where true faith actually begins. And that's exactly what we see happening next in the passage. So, so we move from this sense of looming devastation being, being the final word, it seems like it might be, to, to next having this perspective of faith. There's this perspective of trust in the living God. And so we see this as we move into verses 1 to 7 of chapter 14. Uh, so if you look at the text, this perspective of faith is actually shown to us, first of all, by way of an initial contrast. Um, we, we have a contrast set up between King Saul and his son, Jonathan. Uh, so in verse 1, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, he says, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. In, in other words, well, it seems like devastation is looming. Let's the two of us go over there and fight. And we're told that Jonathan doesn't say anything to his dad about this, his dad Saul. And that's with good reason, because while, while Jonathan is, is preparing to engage in this trust-filled action, which we'll see as, as things go on here in just a second, while Jonathan is ready to engage in trust-filled action, Saul is completely physically inactive and actually spiritually defunct. That's where Saul's at. And you see this beginning in verse 2. Saul's hanging out under the pomegranate tree with his little army of 600 men. So, so here's the Philistine army quickly descending on them and surrounding them. And, and, and all the while, Saul's sitting under the pomegranate tree with his men. He's physically inactive. And not just that, but he's spiritually defunct. And then he's got this Ahijah character there with him on the priestly payroll. He's in the ephod, so he's got the priestly suit on. And in case we forget who Ahijah is, the narrator tells us in verse 3. He's a priest who's in the family line of Eli. 
And we remember Eli and his corrupt sons from the beginning of uh, uh, beginning chapters of Samuel. That's the priestly line that God ultimately promised to bring judgment against. None of them are going to survive because of their total disregard and defamation of God's way. So, so we've got Saul, the king who's been rejected by God. They're with the priest whose priestly line has been rejected by God. And they're all sitting under a tree while the kingdom is about to get completely demolished. So is this picture of physical inactivity, spiritual depravity, all of that in total contrast with Jonathan. What's Jonathan doing? Well, Jonathan's going to fight. He's going to fight. And Jonathan's going to fight not because he thinks he might as well die trying. He's not fighting from a position of believing that, that looming devastation is going to be the final word. No, Jonathan's going to fight because he's trusting in God's kindness to bring deliverance to his people despite the odds. So in verse 3, uh, we see there that, that no one knows Jonathan and his armor bearer left. But then in verse 4, we find them sneaking out between two jagged columns of rocks that separate them. There's this valley, this, this, this rock formation that separates them from the nearest Philistine garrison. Uh, we're actually told, again, we have more names. One of the columns of rocks is called Bozes, we're told, uh, which would be a great dog name, Bozes. And the, the other is called Sine. And we wonder why in the world the narrator would tell us the name of these rock formations, except that it adds to the intensity of the story because the word Bozes in Hebrew, maybe this wouldn't be such a good dog name, but Bozes in Hebrew means something like slippery, and Sine means something like thorny. Thorny. So, so, so in fact, the literal translation here describes these rocks not as sharp columns of rocks, but very literally the, the writer says they're teeth of rocks, and their names are slippery and thorny. So you're just getting a picture here of what, of what Jonathan and his armor bearer are having to, to deal with as they get over uh, to the, to the uh, place where the Philistines are. This is a slippery, thorny, rocky valley, as sharp as teeth is what the narrator said. Okay? And off they go. And, and what is Jonathan's perspective in all this? Well, he says to his attendant in verse 6, he says, you know, we're going to cross over to the garrison and perhaps the Lord will help us. We do notice there, this would be a whole sermon in and of itself. He doesn't presume upon the Lord. Faith never presumes upon the Lord. The Lord may have plans that are outside of our understanding and beyond our comprehension. He may do that. That is His will to do. We understand that the God we serve is the God who is above and over and beyond all things. And His understanding is unsearchable. So Jonathan recognizes that in his statement of faith. Perhaps... Perhaps, he's not undercutting faith, he's simply being honest about the bigness of God and His purposes. Perhaps the Lord will help us, and then he makes this hard and fast statement about what he knows is true about God. Here's his confession of faith. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan's saying, in effect, there's two of us, there's a whole bunch of them, but if God's determined to win, none of that matters, so let's go. And his attendant responds in verse 7, do it, I'm with you wholeheartedly. I'm in, let's, let's do it, let's go. So, so, so we put this together. Jonathan's circumstances are conditions of, of looming devastation. Just, just back at camp, they're conditions of looming devastation. Outnumbered, cut off from rescue and retreat. They're without weapons except for Jonathan himself and his dad. Now, now Jonathan and his armor bearer are out there uh, traversing down this formation of slippery, thorny rocks. So, so down this ravine they go. And they're about to fight a group way larger than the two of them. And why are, well, let's just say something about that real quickly. That's something about the perspective of faith that we need to have in our minds. Because the perspective of faith can often be, if I'm trusting in God, the path that lies ahead of me is going to be open and breezy and filled with rainbows and butterflies. 
If I'm trusting in God, uh, that means that things are going to go along in a wonderful way. And let's just look at this text for a minute. Who's enjoying the shade of the pomegranate tree right now? The one who's not trusting in God. The one who's defunct spiritually. The ones who are trusting in God, they're enduring this rocky crag of all kinds of sharpness and whatever else is going on. So we just need to recognize that in the path of faith, not all things are going to be easy. In fact, things can be much rockier as we decide to go out trusting in the Lord than we are if we decide to sit under our favorite tree in our backyard and pretend like nothing is going on at all. So that's an expectation that we're helped with. So, so, so Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're, they're there. They're about to fight. They're going. And they're going uh, not because they're, they're arrogant with respect to their skill. They're going not because they have any kind of confidence that backup's going to arrive. Even if backup did arrive, they don't have any weapons anyway. So, so they're, they're not going with that kind of confidence. Jonathan's about to fight because he knows this thing that's true about the Lord. Nothing can keep the Lord by saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan knows that's true about God. That's the perspective of faith. It doesn't matter the odds. If the Lord is determined to rescue, there is no stopping him. And that, and that was true about Jonathan, as we'll see, and it's true about us. Now, now we might think, we might read that, hear that, and think to ourselves, that must have been nice for Jonathan. How, how nice for him. It's so wonderful that Jonathan is able to conjure up this kind of against all odds belief in God's help when he's really up against it. But, but, but then we think to ourselves, in my own life, when I'm facing my own conditions of looming devastation, I can't conjure up that kind of faith. I can't pretend, pretend like everything's going to be okay. I can't make up the idea that God will help me. It's a nice notion, but it's just that. It's a notion. Jonathan's faith seems to be based on nothing but, but a hopeful whim. We might read this and, and start thinking to ourselves uh, things along these lines. But, but if we could just sit down with, with the narrator of this story over coffee, which would be such an amazing thing to do, if we could just sit down and bring our concerns up with him along those lines, he would actually tell us that we haven't been reading carefully enough. He would tell us we need to be a little bit more careful because, because there's nothing in this story about Jonathan's trusting in God that's based on thin air or, or hopeful whims of religious fancy. There's something much bigger going on here. And the narrator's given us a clue to that. And we get the clue when we realize that the narrator has crafted the retelling of this desperate situation to, to mirror an earlier desperate situation that's already taken place in Israel's history. What's going on here mirrors what happened to, to, what happened to the people of God in the Exodus where they were rescued from the, from the Egyptian army. And we remember what happened there. What happened when the people of Israel finally were able to leave, uh, to leave Egypt's clutches, as it were? What happened then? Well, immediately what happened is they were pursued by an extraordinary military presence. In fact, if we read Exodus 14, we're literally told there that Pharaoh took the best chariots of Egypt, but then it also says he didn't just take the best, he actually took all the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one to pursue Israel as they fled. So in Exodus, in the Exodus, they were totally outnumbered militarily. And not just that, but the people of Israel were cut off from any hope of rescue or retreat because the armies of Pharaoh encamped against them. And where were they? Well, they were backed up against the Red Sea. There was nowhere for them to go with the armies of Egypt arrayed against them. And in all that, they were hardly armed. Exodus 12 tells us the only things they had with them were some, some um, plundered jewelry that they did take from the Egyptians, but they had no weapons. All they had was unleavened dough, mixing bowls, and their cloaks. That's, that's what they had to fight with. Not to fight with. That's all they had. So what was true about the people of God at the Exodus? Well, what was true about them? They were outmanned. Right? They were outgunned. 
with no way for relief or retreat. And what happens? Well, we know the story. In that impossible situation, the Lord doesn't just cause the Red Sea to part, allowing Israel to escape, so He provides for their escape, but He also causes the Red Sea to come crashing down, totally swallowing the entirety of Pharaoh's army. And then we get to this story here in our verses, and it follows that exact same pattern. God's people are what? They're outmanned, they're outgunned with no way of retreat or no way of relief. But hope isn't lost because it's in those circumstances that God exercises His greatest saving power for His people. And we're not just drawing that parallel because it seems like the details match up, but we're drawing that parallel. In fact, it's a parallel that Jonathan would have drawn because we're directly uh, instructed by God's Word to draw that parallel. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy is Moses' instruction from God for the people as they're living life in the promised land. That's where Jonathan is now. He's in the promised land. Things are a wreck, but he's in the promised land. This is the instruction, Deuteronomy 20, uh, that, that comes to him. When you go out to war against your enemies, check, and see horses, chariots, and an army way larger than yours, army larger than yours, check. Don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. That's the first part of Deuteronomy 20. You see, Jonathan's perspective of faith, his understanding of how God is going to act, isn't based on religious whims or conjured up warm senses of spirituality in his tummy or something like that. Jonathan's perspective of trust is sourced in God's historical actions on behalf of his people, and Jonathan's trust is sourced in the revealed word of God to his people. God has historically shown his power to save, and God has prescriptively said, when you get into circumstances where you need saving, I will save you. I'll be the one for you. So up the toothy rocks we go, by many or by few, it doesn't matter. The Lord can save. Don't you remember the Exodus? That was amazing. Right? So, so in the midst of looming devastation, this is the perspective of faith that Jonathan exercises, and it's the perspective of faith that we can exercise as well. We need to understand this in, in regards to faith. Faith in God amid the pressures of our day, faith well, when, it, when it comes to the largeness of our, of our ultimate need of salvation and the immediate need of our lives in general, faith is not based on whimsical fancies and conjured up good feelings in our tummy. Trust in God is sourced in His historical actions and His word that He gives to us. For us, at our time in God's history, the climactic historical action of God on our behalf is the better exodus, isn't it? It's what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. Because at the cross of Christ, we weren't merely delivered from a kind of Egyptian bondage, a slavery bondage, uh, geographically or nationally speaking. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we were, we were delivered from bondage to sin, from, from bondage in the kingdom of darkness, lost and completely hopeless, apart from God, uh, worthy only of His judgment. But at the cross, what Jesus does is He brings us through this greater exodus into this place of relief. That's why Paul can say in places like Romans 5, God proves His own love for us, how? How do I measure the fact that God loves me? Is it because Monday is going to be good? Or is it because Saturday was a decent day? No, how do I know God loves me? What proves that? God proves His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, faith isn't sourced in whims and fancies. It's sourced in the historical work of God to bring ultimate deliverance for us, to reconcile us to Himself, to make us His own. And it's sourced in the fact that through His Word, He makes that clear. Here's how I have loved you. Come what may. Judge your world by this. 
Judge what's going on in your life by this. Judge whether or not you can trust me by this. I sent my only son to the cross so that you could be eternally saved. There's no greater love than this. This is what God has done for us. And so when we think about a life of faith, this is where things begin. I don't trust in God because tomorrow might be a good day or yesterday wasn't a very good day. That is not ultimately where my source of trust is at all when it comes to the living God. I don't trust in God because I've been doing pretty well spiritually this week and, you know, prayed six times. I got up early twice. I kind of fell asleep, but I did a little better the next day. And so so I'm feeling pretty good about how my life of faith is going. No, I have faith because of what God has done historically and because because of what his word says to me presently. That's the source of our faith, which is exactly what's going on here for Jonathan. And we need to know this because this ultimately is what gives us that posture of grace to be pulled up from out of the miry bogs that we, that we find ourselves in in our lives. This is the perspective of faith. If the Lord would do that for me, cancer's got nothing on the cross. If the Lord would do that for me, this relationship that's in turmoil, I don't see a way through it, how it's going to end, but that's got nothing on what He's done for me at the cross. If, 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 if God would do that for me, sending His Son to die on the cross, that sin that's persistent and destructive and keeps coming back around and, and, and causing me all this trouble in my heart, that's got nothing on what Jesus has done for me at the cross. There is no way I can be separated from the love of God. So all of this is set in the context of a perspective of faith. This is the Lord who saves. It doesn't matter what our circumstances may be. He's proved His love. He's proved His power. And that's what we bring to mind. And so, and so, as we look at this, we see uh, that, that this uh, is, is very evident as we, as we keep moving through the final sections of this chapter. Not only is Jonathan confessing a faith in God, he knows the Lord is, is strong to save, but that's actually exactly what plays out as we work through the final, the final verses of this. So if you look at uh, verses 8 to 23, which we're going to do quickly, it's a whole world of sermons, but we're going to do this quickly just to catch the flow of all of this. We see how Jonathan's perspective of faith is, is, is now finally uh, going, to, uh, going to yield this, this uh, uh, experience of the Lord's victory. So we've moved from devastation to victory here by the end. Um, verses 8 to 23, if you look at that, a whole bunch happens. To go through it in detail would take too long. But Jonathan, he puts together this quick exercise to discern whether or not they should attack. Uh, he says, if we show ourselves to the Philistines and they say, wait till we reach you, then we'll not go up to them. Which is kind of interesting because that would be a better battle strategy. Wait for them to come down to you. You can hide in the rocks and ambush them, whatever it might be. But Jonathan, sa- Jonathan says, if they say, come up here, we'll know that the Lord will give us victory. Which is a much more daring thing to do. Go up into this camp where they're all waiting for them. Right? But this is how Jonathan sets it up. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they show themselves from among the rocks. The Philistines, they think that they're some of the Israelites who were hiding in the rocks. We read about them earlier in chapter 13. Philistines say, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. And that was the green light Jonathan needed. So he and his armor bearer go up. They soundly trounce this garrison. They kill 20 soldiers in a small area, verses 13 and 14. And then from there, things totally unravel for the Philistines. And in verse 15, uh, and we have it in the CSB, it's, 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 uh, it reflects that the Hebrew word terror is repeated three times. Three times. Terror spread through the Philistine camp among the troops in the field. The raiding party, so those groups that had gone out to the cities to set up parameter for, for no, no uh, reinforcements to show up, they were terrified. And in all of this, there's this earthquake and the terror of God falls on the Philistines as well. Which, of course, calls them to, causes them to, to fall into a total panic. They're even fighting against themselves. Verse 16, King Saul is still in his useless place back under the pomegranate tree. He's still there, but his watchmen, 
look out across the rocky ravine. They see what's going on. Philistines panicking, scattering everywhere. Saul figures out that Jonathan actually went out against them. He's got to sort through that. So the defunct King Saul says to the defunct priest Ahijah, bring the ark. Presumably, and this is interesting, Saul's going to do what Deuteronomy 20 also says to do, which is, which is engage in this spiritual exercise of, of dependence before the Lord before you go out into battle. But then, because things are going so well and the panic is getting worse for the Philistines, Saul actually, Saul actually scraps the whole spiritual idea. He tells him to just forget that whole, the whole ark thing, priest, and we're just going to go after it. So Saul, I mean, he's just a total disaster, spiritually speaking. But of course, it's not Saul who fights for his people. It's the Lord who fights for his people. We read here how Hebrews who defected to the Philistines, they actually changed sides again. They now fight for Israel. Israelites who'd been hiding because of the threat, they came out and joined too. Verse 23, what is the end? What What is the final line in all that's happening? So the Lord saved Israel that day. So the Lord saved Israel amid the totality of their messy weakness. The Lord saved them. The Lord works victory for His people because it doesn't matter if there are many or a few. The Lord doesn't abandon them. He delivers them. And the question is, how, how, how does He do that? How does He deliver us? And while there is much we could say about that, there is something central that we need to notice in this story because there's a pattern that runs through the Old Testament that we're meant to see. It's highlighted uh, with, 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 uh, with big bright letters. If, if we could highlight it that way, we need to see it that way. We can get used to it and pass over it because it shows up so often. But all of this is ultimately driving us forward to Jesus and what He accomplishes once again. And the pattern is this. Going through the Old Testament, through the faithfulness of one, People are saved. So, through the faithfulness of think about that paradigm. Through the faithfulness of one, people are saved. Noah. Through the faithfulness of Noah, humanity is not wiped out but preserved in the flood. Right? Joseph. Through the faithfulness of Joseph, people don't starve to death but are saved from famine. Moses. Through the faithfulness of Moses, Israel isn't crushed under the yoke of slavery but they're delivered. Joshua. Through the faithfulness of Joshua, the people are brought into the land of rest, defeating enemies all around. How about Jonathan? Well, through the faithfulness of one man, the people of Israel are saved, even though they're outmanned, outgunned, and cut off from any hope of rescue or escape. And we could go on and on like this throughout the Old Testament. This is how the Lord works. Through the faithfulness of one, salvation comes. Through the faithfulness of one, rescue is going to come. Relief is going to come. The victory of God is going to come. It's a pattern all through the Old Testament. And why is that? Well, because it's a pattern that's preparing us. It's preparing us for the ultimate expression of God's rescuing reality that will come in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way God works. We need to be able to recognize Jesus for who He is and what He's doing when He appears on the scene. When Jesus comes, He is the one who brings relief in an ultimate, climactic, grand and glorious way, in a way never before seen in the Old Testament or in the New Testament combined. Jesus is the one who ultimately comes and says, I'm the one who is the climax of all of these figures who bring the relief we need. And he shows that in his ministry by what? Defeating sickness. It's one thing to defeat a Philistine garrison. How about, how about a troop, uh, a legion of demons that are, that are indwelling a man? Like we read about in Mark chapter 5. Jesus comes and the, demons, the man falls down before him terrified because of who Jesus is. And he delivers the man from the demons. Jesus delivers people from sickness. He delivers people from death. He shows himself strong to be the ultimate deliverer. Finally going to the cross and bringing us the reconciliation with God that we need. 
And, and, so, and so as we see the trajectory of what's going on here, we're being shown that there is an anticipatory picture given and that while we can be facing these overwhelming odds, while we can find ourselves lost and hopeless, ultimately, through the faithfulness of one, salvation is going to come. In this case, it was through Jonathan, which name in Hebrew means the Lord gives. And the Lord did give, didn't he? He gave him victory that day. Climactically, that comes through Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Jesus comes and He does what's necessary to bring us to a place of reconciliation with God. And that's the biggest cosmic thing He does and accomplishes at His cross. But that's not the only thing He does. He comes and He brings us that grand redemption. But then out of that grand redemption, He comes and He brings us, brings us the comfort and the perseverance and the grace we need to go through the rocky crags of our daily life, continually trusting in Him, continually being drawn back to Him. We saw this last week in Psalm 23. It's the Lord Jesus who ultimately surrounds us and brings us through this life to our eternal home. And so through the faithfulness of one, rescue comes. It's, it's not a rescue that ultimately is flood, famine, or the Philistines. It's a rescue from the place we are, an alienation from God because of our sin. Jesus pays that price on the cross. He brings us back into relationship with God and ultimately gives us life eternal uh, through, through His accomplishment. And so as we think about these things, I wonder, may, maybe, and there's so much more to say here, but, but maybe you're in the rocks this morning. Right? Maybe you're between slippery and thorny places. Maybe it's personal sin that's tangling. Maybe it's uh, mounting concerns that leave you overwhelmed and disoriented. Maybe it's just a deep sense of being, of being down in the miry bog, like the psalmist says. From a passage like this, we're just reminded to look to Jesus. We, we look to the Savior that the Scriptures point us to. Because as we do that, we don't find in Jesus a defunct king sitting under a nice tree while people suffer. And looking to Jesus, we ultimately find the great actor of salvation who comes and brings the relief that we ultimately need. He says, look at me. He says, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished for you. And as he does that, he counters everything we might say in return. What about what I've done? What about what I've been? What about uh, all, that I, all that I am and the sorrow that I face? No, Jesus says, 1 Samuel 14, 6, nothing can keep the Lord from saving. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving. He is the faithful one who brings salvation to us. And we're reminded of that from a passage like this. So we're thankful for God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do praise you that you're the one who brings grace to us. You're the one who effects salvation for us. You're the one who brings us the greatest rescue, the cosmic rescue, and saves us from our sin. And in that, O oh Lord, you're also the one who brings us the daily measures of help and persevering strength. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would look to you as the one who never rejects, but always uh, comes to our aid, always accompanies us, always is compelling us forward in the path of salvation. We pray that we would find comfort in him. And instead of isolation, instead of hopelessness, we would find the rest that only you can bring. We ask that in your name. Amen.